0: Okay, so here's a subject that I hope you find interesting this evening. This is a really important one. This is sin and grace. Okay, sin and grace, and there's lots to say about this. And a lot of what I'm going to do this evening is draw distinctions. And if you understand those distinctions, I think it'll really clarify your thinking. Okay, and I think this will really help you a lot. Um, okay, so there's lots of misunderstandings about sin. There's lots of ignorance about grace. Let's try to get to the bottom of of clarifying these ideas. Okay, there's two big categories of sin. Original sin and personal sin. Who's ever heard of original sin? Who's never heard of original sin? Everybody's heard of original sin? Okay. First thing to understand about original sin is that it's a misnomer. You didn't actually do anything, okay? Original sin is a condition that you inherit. Um, You're rescued from original sin, by baptism but is to say you're given God's grace Um, but you're always going to have the effects of original sin like a wound. What is original sin? It's very simple. Original sin is the loss of the grace that God intended you to have. Now um, here's what we say happened. You go back to the book of Genesis you read the story of Adam and Eve. I'm not going to get into the historicity of the story of Adam and Eve, okay? However, the truths that it teaches are very, very great. It's just, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was just thinking about this. Um, Eve turned aside from God for the sake of, a, of an object, the sake of a thing. God, uh, Adam turned aside from God for the sake of Eve. And I'm telling you, I see that all over the place all over the place. I've seen more people say, well, you know, I know that I shouldn't do this, but I love her, so... And then they go and they commit a sin. And it's just like the Adam and Eve story. By the way, um, does the Bible say they ate an apple? It does not. Anybody know what the Bible said they ate? Forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit. Does it say what kind of fruit it is? Do you know why we call it an apple? Just an interesting little bit of trivia. The word for apple is mala in Latin. The word for evil... Is mala in less exact same word? The word for apple and the word for evil is the same word, that's why they say it was an apple. Okay, um, personally, I think Apple computer is evil, which (laughs) makes perfect sense. But they, but what's important is that there was a free willed disobedience to God, okay, a free willed disobedience to God, and as a consequence of that disobedience to God, there's been a break between the relationship that we were supposed to have with God and the relationship that we have. Um, why is it so hard to teach people morality? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to teach people about religion? I mean, I have, a, see, I have so much more effective teaching people history than I am teaching people of religion. I can tell people about World War I, and it's the most fascinating subject in the world. I tell people about religion, and I fight to win their attention. Why? Ironically, World War One's is quite immoral. Well, that, that being a separate subject, Yes. But, um, but, but people have a hard time paying attention. I mean, you don't. You hear voluntarily. But I taught religion in high school. And I taught history in high school. And it's much harder to teach religion. Because we've, we're naturally skeptical of God. Our relationship with God has been ruptured. We think God is our enemy. He's going to take stuff from us. He's going to make a bunch of burdensome rules that are going to cramp our style and keep us from living a fun life that we ought to have and get in our way that's a consequence of original sin. What I'd like to say is that was, that was not the way you, God intended that you'd be created. In God's intended creation, God was a loving Father, and we knew it. At the marrow of our bones, we knew it. Original sin broke that. You know what happens in the Adam and Eve story as soon as there's original sin? They have shame. Adam and Eve hide from God. And God says, where'd you go? They run and hide from God. So... Um, Another, another consequence of, uh, of original sin uh, is that it makes it hard to do what's right. We'll get into that. It makes it easy to do what's wrong. Why is it so easy to go through the drive-thru? so hard to eat a salad. Why is it so easy to stay up late, too late, and so hard to get up early? Why is it so easy to tell a lie? And so, I mean, I, you, you could probably get some biological reasons for this and some evolutionary reasons for this, but what I want to tell you is a theological spiritual reason for it. It's because there's a relationship with God that was supposed to be there. It's been broken. This is what we call original sin. In fact, it's been said, think about this for just a moment, original sin is the one belief of our faith that you don't even, I should say, one of the beliefs of our faith that you don't even need faith to believe. Can you not look at, like imagine an alien from outer space, they come down and they just observe the human race. Well, the first thing they're going to observe is, man, they're screwed up. Something wrong with them. Something wrong with them. I don't see, they do squirrels aren't screwed up like this. Chipmunks aren't screwed up like this. Plants in gardens aren't screwed up like this. But those human beings, they're screwed up. And what we're saying, I'm giving you a theological reason for it. Now, you can say it's not fair, and you could make a very good point. You didn't do anything wrong, you're just born like this, right? I tell you, for the longest time, this was my gripe. I learned about this in high school, I learned about this in grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic grade school. They told me about original sin, I thought, That's a raw deal. I didn't do anything wrong. And that is... Ever ever thought that before? Anyway, I think about these things. It's probably why I became a priest, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, It is true. It isn't fair. It isn't fair. However, part of the fact that you're a human being, and it's just in your nature, means that what somebody else does affects you, whether you like it or not. Now, this works in two directions. It works for the good and it works for the bad. So you say, original sin isn't fair. I might have used this image before. I'll probably use it again. And I say, yeah, it isn't fair. But nobody ever looks at Jesus dying on a cross and says, that's not fair. I should get to die too, right? Somebody should crucify me. That's not fair. He gets all the crucifixion. What's wrong? I tell you, it's true. One person's bad action brings you down. Like You never tried to blow up an airplane, but you have to go through security as though you might. It's not your fault. On the other hand, um, when one person does an act of great kindness, it's like the whole world is ennobled by it. Everybody's lifted up. You didn't do an act of kindness, but you benefit from it. So it does work in both directions. It's just something to remember next time you you think that uh, or, next time you think that original sin isn't fair. Okay, um, but this is something that happened. It's it's we've inherited this from the very very beginning, and it's a d- totally different category. And that's not really what I'm here to talk about this evening. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about baptism. Okay? But what I really want to talk about when we talk about sin is the sin of doing the wrong thing. Right? We talk about personal sin or actual sin. Actu- actual means like in the act of committing an act. Okay, That's what we call it actual sin. All right, let's clarify a few things. First of all, sin has to be a choice. Can't be an accident, can't be a temptation. Can't tell you how many times I've sat in confession, People come to confession and they confess their temptations. They feel bad that they felt tempted, but the question is: Did you choose anything? Did you use your freedom and choose anything? Because if you didn't, it's not a sin. You could be really, really tempted. You could feel disgusted at yourself for being so tempted to do something so wrong. But if you didn't do it, it's not a sin yet. All right. So lust in the heart. It has to be. Well, we'll get to this. It can be a, a choice. Can be an action. A choice can be a word. A choice can be a thought. You can dwell on thoughts, like let's think back to you were 10 years old, you were 12 years old, you got bullied on the playground. You, in, in your mind, you go back over that and you imagine all the things you wish you could do to those bullies. Um, you know, I was just, the reason why this comes up is I was, was thinking this myself. You know, I was just, I'll tell you if I had a submachine gun, I would have nailed him. Well, okay, good thought, bad thought. Bad thought, is it a choice? Well, at some point it becomes a choice. Now, I can say there's, there are ideas dance around in your head. And, and you, you hardly even are aware that they're there. Is it a sin or not? I'm not sure yet. But there definitely comes a point in which you choose to think about it. Yes or yes? Yes. Let's talk about the easiest way that can... Let's talk about sins of lust in your heart. Okay. Uh, this is particularly difficult for men. I've never been a woman. Never will be. Uh, so I don't know, but I'm told that it's hard for ladies, too. But I can guarantee you firsthand it's hard for a guy. You're, you know, you're looking at the computer, you're looking at the newspaper, you're driving down the street, you see a billboard, suddenly there's an image, and you weren't intending to think anything bad, but there's this picture. The next thing, there's all these ideas dancing around in your head. Is it a sin? Well, when you start really going over it in detail, yes. Because that's when it becomes a choice. That's the important thing to understand. It's Actually, it's very legal. You know our legal system? We, we prosecute people for decisions that they make. But you can prosecute somebody if they really plan to do something, even if they didn't carry it out. Admitted. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing with sin. You see, it's, it's, it's actually, I don't want to get into the history of the legal system, but let's just say it comes from the same roots. All right, it comes from the exact same roots. So sin, it's a free choice. And that choice is always a disobedience to God's will. Can you sin by accident? No. Is a temptation a sin? No. No. Is a strong attraction a sin? It's a temptation. Temptation. Temptation is another word for a strong attraction. Um, Let me tell you, here's the thing about a sin, uh, very, very briefly. Actually, I could say this about all evil. It is too much of or too little of a good thing, every single time. Evil is too much of a good thing or too little of a good thing, but it's never a bad thing. It's the misuse of something good. That's what makes it wrong. I mean, you can talk about sleep. Too, too little sleep, it's bad. Too much sleep, you might say good, but you know what I mean. okay? Uh, food. Too little food, bad. Too much food, you might be tempted to say good, but you see where I'm going with this. Right. It's too much of, or too little of, a perfectly good thing. It's a misuse of something good. That's what a sin always is. You're never tempted. I mean, even if it's like vindictive... I mean, let's get to the heart of like a... somebody who commits a crime. You know what they're actually thinking? I don't want to get too far deep down this road and start a debate, but somewhere in their heart they want justice. I'm saying something is good at every single sin somewhere there's a... and it can get really, really dark, don't get me wrong. But it's always a twist on something good. That's the reason you're attracted to it. You're made for goodness. Okay? That's the reason you're attracted to it. Okay, so... But it has to be a free choice, that's my first big question. And that free choice does something to you. Remember how I said before, a week or so ago, if you tell a lie, and you tell another lie, and you tell another lie, it does something to you. You ever had, the, you ever had this experience before, where someone asks you a question, and out of your mouth comes a lie, and you didn't even think about it? I confess, it's happened to me. You know how that happens? It, tells, it comes from telling too many lies. Out of your mouth comes a falsehood, and you're like, where'd that come from? Well, there are some people, you know them, they're in the news, right? And all they do is tell lies. We have to call them what they've chosen to become, liars. Same thing with theft. You can steal and steal and steal, and some people can steal and they don't even think about it. You have to call them what they've chosen to become, a thief. Choices make your character, or they destroy your character. But what I'm saying is sin does something to you, okay? Um, And that's why it's important to say it's not the breaking of a rule. People often think of sin as being a rule God made. And God's up in heaven, and he doesn't want you to break the rule. Well, if all you think of that sin is a rule, you're never going to be convinced not to sin. You're never going to be convinced. Because, you know, you you drive 26 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, you've broken a rule. You can drive right past a marked police officer going 30 at a 25, and he won't do anything to you. It's just a rule. Unless you're in a school zone. Unless you're in a school, school zone. zone, okay? <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing, I took 11, 11 items to the 10 item checkout line at the Target. I asked the lady, what's the consequence of taking 11 items through the 10 item checkout line? She <laughs> says, I can't do anything to you. Just smile and send you on your way, <laughs> right? But you don't lose sleep at night for breaking rules. Here's the only thing that really hurts you. Hurting your relationships. Now, if you found out that you said something, did something, that hurt your friendship. Now you care, okay? Now it matters. And what I want to try to tell you about sin, this is the only way to understand it. If you want to know why it's wrong, you know, like, you ever heard of Calvin Coolidge and how he didn't say very many words? You ever heard this jokes? Calvin Coolidge, everybody's heard of Calvin Coolidge, right? Well, he has a reputation for being very, very sparse with his words. Um, Like you could, somebody, a reporter supposedly said to Calvin Coolidge, you know, I'll, 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 they'll give me $1,000 if I can get you to say more than if I can get you to say three words. And he says, you lose. <laughs> um, but, you know, they say Calvin Coolidge went to church. And the wife asked, well, what happened at church? And Calvin Coolidge said, pastor preached. What did he preach about? And he goes, sin. What do he say? He's against it. <laughs> So why is it so bad? Why is is the priest against sin? Because it destroys relationships and that's all you've got in life. Let me tell you, there's three relationships you have in life. Three relationships. You might not have thought of it like this, but there's three relationships you have. God, self, and others. Sin damages them or breaks them with God, self, and others. Let's take a quick little look here. I've already talked to you about Adam and Eve and what happened after they committed a sin. God went and looked for them. But Have you ever felt like God doesn't love you? Don't have to answer me. You ever felt like God doesn't care? You ever felt like God loves everybody else except you? Um, The more you sin, the more you begin to feel like Adam, and this is why I say the Adam and Eve story has so many great details, the more you begin to feel like Adam and Eve who ran away from God. You think God has run away from you. The truth is you've run from him. That's what happens. Remember I told you about the prodigal son story? And the prodigal the father embraced the guy who ran away with all his money and squandered it in Vegas. It wasn't Vegas, but you know what I mean. Was the father ever, ever deficient in love for the son? Never. And that is the truth about God and us. But it hurts your relationship. You think God doesn't love you. That's a consequence of sin. And that's one of the worst things. A sinner will begin to think, I can never be forgiven. And you'll find these people and they've committed terrible, terrible sins legitimately terrible sins. I mean, I've heard confessions for 20 years. I've heard some frightening things. And and, and people sometimes they have a hard time believing God can forgive them. Sin makes you think God can't forgive you. It hurts your relationship with God. Okay, And that's very, very important. Very, very important uh, to understand. Before sin, God was a loving father. After sin, he's a stingy taskmaster. He's a tyrant. It's not just that It's not just that God can't forgive you. It's that you don't trust him. It's that you think that his rules get in the way of your happiness rather than enhance it. Um, It means that you are skeptical uh, of God or anybody who represents God or anybody who tells you about God or speaks about God. I think I used the image of of a teenager playing basketball, didn't I? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I can't remember who I say what to. I talk to so many people. So pardon me if I repeat myself. But, you know, a teenager plays basketball. Why is he playing basketball? Because he loves the game. You tell him about basketball, he's going to try to soak up every word that you can possibly tell him. LeBron James steps out of a, steps out of a limo and teaches him basketball. He writes down every last word he says. He tries to memorize his advice because he loves the game. Well, that's the way it should be with us and God. Anybody who tries to draw us closer to God, we want to drink up every word they say. But we're not like that. What I want to tell you is that's one of the consequences of sin. The more we sin, the worse that gets. It hurts that relationship. That's the most important relationship you can have. I was reading about an epidemic of suicide among middle school students. Apparently this is going on all across the country. Middle school students. Long story short, the greatest antidote to suicide I can possibly think of is to convince someone that, 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 that they're known, that they're loved, that they have a purpose. Actually, I once talked a kid out of suicide. Once. This is what I said. Just FYI. I said, would you stay alive if your, if your life could help somebody you love? What if you, you, you and you alone could help somebody you love? Would you stay alive? Yes, I would. Great. Now what if you're not going to meet that person for five years? Now what if you're not going to meet that person for 10 years? Isn't it worth... I tried to convince him he had a purpose. That purpose comes from knowing who God is. That purpose is destroyed because sin destroys that awareness. That's why it's so bad. Does that make sense? It's the most powerful relationship you have, and sin weakens it. We want to build it back up. The other thing, I think this one's the most obvious. Sin breaks your trust between persons. Isn't there great distrust? Men to women. Women to men. The bonds between us are torn. Uh, bonds between nations. Um, and that's why I said there's a communal element to sin. This is something you almost have to try to trust me on. Take the, you almost have to take this on faith. There's no, such thing as sin, there's no such thing as any sin that just affects you. Ever. In a mystical way, we're all united to each other. And that's why you hear about an atrocity across the ocean, right? Some mass shooting in France. Why, do we, why don't we all say, the hell, they're, they're, from, they're in France, I'm not in France, why should I care? We care because we're tied to one another. Okay? And in a similar mystical, spiritual way, we're tied to one another. Your bad action brings everyone in the world down. I can't exactly quantify to you how, but I kind of ask you to just kind of intuit that and try to follow where I'm going with this. Um, if nothing else, by diminishing God's, uh, God's uh, image in you, so I, I hear confessions for second graders every year, second graders making the first confession. And every year, second-grader parents come into confession. And I'll say, why are you going to confession? And you, you know what they'll say? They'll say, because I now realize that what I do affects my kid, and I want my kid to be better. For his sake, I'm, I, I want to shape up my act. Okay? So it's one of the most powerful motives we can have to get our to get our act together. Everything we do, even if it weakens your own goodness as a man or a woman, um, it hurts people that we sin. It's very clear in great sins. Somebody commits a war crime, somebody blows up twin towers, whatever it might be. But I want to tell you, it's just as true for every sin. Now, here's one of the most mysterious ones. Sin makes you hate yourself. Now, let's build to this. When you wake up in the morning... um, and you don't hit the snooze button, you know you're supposed to get up at, let's just say in my case, 5.15. That's my I must get up hour. And you do it. Don't you feel good about yourself? When you hit the snooze button, you gain some sleep, but at what price? Somewhere down inside, you kind of hate yourself for it. When you don't take the second slice of pie, when you don't go through the drive through, when you don't tell the lie, whatever it might be, don't you kind of feel good about yourself? When you do give in to your passion that you know you shouldn't, don't you kind of feel diminished? I had a psychiatrist once uh, that I knew, and he told me that he wished he could have gone to seminary because he'd love to learn about confession. He said, confession the healthiest thing in the whole wide world because there's nothing healthier than saying out loud, I'm sorry for what I did. Friends do it to friends. Uh, You know, you turn on, I don't know, the Oprah Winfrey show isn't on television anymore, but people used to confess out loud on Oprah, right? Oprah can't give them absolution, but they felt better saying out loud, I'm sorry. There's something good about that. And the psychiatrist, he said something very fascinating. He says, when you do something wrong and you know it's wrong, there's only two things anyone ever does. Either they say, I'm sorry, or they beat themselves up and punish themselves for it. I don't know if you've ever studied psychology and even at an amateur level, but if you have, you've come to realize a lot of self-destructive behaviors are self-punishing behaviors. Where does the instinct of punishing yourself come from? If not, that you've done something wrong and you know it. It makes you hate yourself. That's why sin matters, okay? So when you think about sin as costing you everything that matters to you, your peace of mind, your relationship with God, Now you can see why it matters so much, because relationships are all we have in life. So here's the thing, sin really does harm us. And here's where we know when the church tells us that something's a sin, we want to sit up and take notice. It really does harm us. It's almost like a nutritionist saying, don't go to McDonald's, it's not healthy. Now you can go, and maybe you didn't know that it wasn't healthy, but it's still not healthy whether you knew it or not. The fact that someone's telling you is actually someone doing you a favor. This won't help you, okay? And that's one of the things, it's hard to internalize, but it's true. Let's talk about how it weakens the divine image in you, okay? How sin weakens the divine image in you. Let's say this is the night of distinctions. There's lots of distinctions to talk about. Your divine image in you consists of two things. A mind and a will. That's what the divine image means. You have a mind like no animal in the world has a mind. hope that makes sense. And you have a free will. Like no animal in the world has a free will. Um, you can ponder, you can plan. You won't find you know, a pack of dogs scheming to take revenge on an enemy dog. Right? You've got a will like no, nothing else in nature has a will. Well, sin weakens it. Now, it doesn't make you stupid. Okay? But it does make it harder to understand why something's wrong. The more you sin, the less clear it becomes the difference between right and wrong everything becomes a shade of gray to a soul that has never committed a sin it's really really clear you know i mean i i, I uh, let's just by hypothetical example a husband and a wife they've never been unfaithful to each other a little word of unfaithfulness here a little action of unfaithfulness there a little Wandering the eye, a little wandering the mind, a little getting into a bad conversation that you shouldn't get into on a computer or something like that. Suddenly, the definition of suddenly the definition of unfaithful becomes cloudy. What? What exactly? Where exactly does unfaithful begin? Where exactly does faithful end? It didn't used to be that way. It wasn't like that on their wedding day, right? Perfectly clear then. That's what I want to try to tell you. It weakens your ability to choose the difference between right and wrong, and your ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. That's what I mean when I say it weakens the divine image in you. It's actually really, really clear to somebody who's never committed a sin the difference between right and wrong. You ever notice that's why people always pounce on those who are transgressors? You know, you read about somebody's sin in the newspaper and all the comments. I shouldn't say newspaper. These days nobody has newspapers. I'm showing my age. All the comments. Everyone's quick to pounce on somebody because that's why they didn't commit a sin. It's very clear to somebody who's on the outside. But little by little by little, okay. And here's how great great misdeeds come into. Ever tell you the story of the judgment, the the, the trials of Nuremberg, the Nazis, and they? It tells you about the the, the the bodies going over the conveyor belt. Yeah, and then um, was it uh, Hermann Goering said, "What's the matter with that?" Well, he wasn't born looking at bodies of dead people that. He helped, had a hand in killing and say what's the matter with that? He he worked his way there, little by little. Might not ever come that way with you, but I hope you understand the concept, okay? Um, Here's a big importance, the difference between material sin and formal sin. Um, If somebody's been raised in a society of headhunters, and they're headhunters, is it a sin that they're a headhunter? I would say, materially speaking, yes. And here's what I mean by that. What they're doing is wrong. Inasmuch as what they're doing is not good, I'd call it a sin. But are they guilty for it? Let's just make life simple and say not necessarily. Okay? Let's talk about uh, the gypsy kids who are growing up on the streets in, in Rome. and I had a gypsy kids on the streets in uh, uh, Milan, and a kid tried to s- slash a knife through my pocket and steal whatever was in there. Probably seven years old, eight years old. Did you do something wrong? Is he guilty for what he did? I'm not sure. Somewhat, let's just say somewhat. And but let's just say let's let's just call it an example of what I'm trying to define as a material sin. Let's a real simple example would be a, a kid drawing. I give this as an example of this in your notes. A kid drawing on the wall in crayons, and he's three years old. Did he do something wrong? Is he guilty for it? A three-year-old. Let's just say no. Let's just, say, uh, let's just say he has no idea that it has been right and wrong at that age. We'll make it two years old, make it even clearer. I'm trying, to make, I'm trying to draw a distinction here. People will often say that something's wrong, but somebody doesn't know that something is wrong, therefore it can't be a sin. What I wanted to say is they're not guilty if they don't know, but I'm still saying something's wrong. I'm going to call that a material sin. Make sense? Okay. Does it destroy your relationship, a material sin, with somebody? I'm going to say no, it doesn't. Does the little kid who draws on the wall in crayons... I, I saw a Facebook the other day, and the kid got into the mom's wallet, tore up all the money. Tore up all the money. Does the mom now dislike the kid for staring? The mom might be angry. But I would say the love is diminished by zero. It doesn't hurt your relationship. Okay. So, if you're ignorant of a sin, and you do a wrong thing, and you didn't know it was wrong, does it hurt your relationship with God? The answer is no. Make sense? Does it still cause some, some harm to you? Yes. To others? Yes. Okay. That, that's material sin. That's not really what we're talking about here this evening. This evening we're talking more about formal sin. This is when it's wrong and you know it's wrong. Okay. That's what we're talking about when we talk about sin that has all those terrible effects. Formal sin. The essence of sin lies in the desire of the heart to oppose God's will. And by opposing God's will, I can make that even simpler. I can say the essence of sin lies in a choice of your freedom, to do what you know is wrong, and you don't care. You just want what you want. Okay, you just want what you want. Um, to go against God's will, to know it, and to be guilty for it—that's what. That's what becomes part of you. That's what corrupts you. Okay, that's what tears you apart little by little. Now, there's two kinds of sin. Okay, as far as the church is concerned, this is as far as grace is concerned. We'll talk about grace in just a second. There's two kinds of sin, mortal and venial. All right? Let's talk about these uh, in terms of relationships. Mortal sin breaks a relationship. Let's say it breaks the relationship with God. There's three criteria. They all have to be present. It has to be something that's of a serious nature by itself. Okay? It has to be serious matter. You have to know what you're doing. It can't be a knee-jerk reaction. It can't be a forced habit. It can't be somebody with a gun to your back. Okay, it has to be a full consent of the will. You have to know what you're doing. You have to freely choose it on a serious matter. In other words, God, I know this breaks my relationship with you. I'm aware of that. Nobody's forcing me to do it, and I'm still choosing it. That's what a mortal sin is. And that's like saying, God, just leave. And, he, and, and he'll and he'll leave. We we'll say that drives the life of grace out of your soul. And that's why we call it mortal. The root of mortal is uh, mortis, which means death. Okay, a uh, mortal sin has to contain all. By the way, it has to contain all three elements. It can't be something that's a very serious thing that you think about and someone forced you to do, or a very serious thing uh, um, that you did freely, but geez, it was such a fixed habit you didn't even know you did it until you already did it, or something that you thought about and. And you, and you freely chose it, but it, it was a trifle. It just really wasn't that big a deal. Sometimes you'll have people and they'll feel really bad about things, and there's not that big a deal. Okay, so mortal sin is all three. Now, anything else is a venial sin. Anything that's not all three. And I want to say is it wounds the relationship, it doesn't kill the relationship. Think about it like a husband and a wife once again. Okay. Um, he knows... Uh, um, the wife's, I don't know, birthday or whatever is coming up. He's on a business trip. Uh, he chooses to ignore it. He tells her he chooses to ignore it. Their relationship is seriously ruptured until that's fixed, right? Um, if any of those is missing, if you forgot, if the phone lines were broken, something it, it doesn't rupture the relationship, okay? And this is sort of like you can say that anything else, it does wound your relationship with God, Here's an example of a venial sin in like a, a relationship context. There's a man I know, he he wouldn't put his shoes in the closet. The wife really wants him to put his shoes in the closet. He's like, would you back down, stop telling me what to do. I don't feel like putting my shoes in the closet. Get over it. Well, she's not going to tell him to go sleep on the couch that night, right? She's not going to get up and leave and go move in with her mother, or better yet, Tell him to leave and go move in with his mother. Right? Um, um, that's the funny thing about these breakups. The woman always keeps the house. <laughs> but um, but but it's, it's going to weaken their relationship. Yes. And until he learns to do something because she loves it, the relationship's never going to go forward. That's what a venial sin is like. So please don't think that it, there's not a small little sin, a trifle, a peccadillo, a peccadillo. Um, one of my favorite images for venial sin comes from St. Francis de Sales. He says, imagine a jar full of pure golden honey with a spider web in it. Most of the honey is still fine, but something's really wrong. Okay? You could fish the spider web out. You could fish every trace of the spider web out. Nobody would ever know the difference. You can fix it, Okay, but something's still really bad. Anybody who cares about honey doesn't want to buy that jar. Okay, so that, that's venial sin. All the venial sins in the world don't add up to a mortal sin. It's very, very important. They're different by their nature. Okay, um, but I, but please don't think that please don't think that it's a trifle. Uh, there's a, another category I want to get into before we talk about grace. Poor grace, it always gets shoved off to the end. Um, but the capital sins. You ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Ever heard of the seven cardinal sins? Okay properly known they're the capital sins, not deadly sins, not cardinal sins, but capital sins. Here's why they're called capital sins. Not because they're the worst thing in the world, but because caput, head, that's the Latin word for head, caput, every sin you can possibly commit reduces to one of these seven. I could call them the seven elemental sins. They're like the, the, the elements out of which every sin, and just very briefly, so I'll list off these things, and people will think, well, that's not that bad. Um, and they're, they're not intended to be that bad. What I mean to say is that every sin is ultimately one of these. You can I'd isolate every sin in the world by these. <laughs> pride. Great misunderstanding. Pride does not mean a feeling of loyalty to your country or loyalty to your school or uh, you know, a feeling of uh, uh, gratitude for a job well done. You know what pride is? It's the vaunting of yourself over another person. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, you got a Mustang, I got a Porsche. You got a Porsche, I got a Ferrari. I'm better than you. Um, you scored two baskets, I scored four. If, you ever, we all know it, and we hate it. Don't we hate it when people do this? You went to England, I went to England, and France. Whatever it is, you vaunt yourself over another person. Um, you ever had, You ever told a story and somebody says to you, after hearing your story that you're really proud of telling, they say, oh, that's nothing, and they tell you a story? That's pride. That's a very simple idea of pride. But the idea of pride, the sin of it, is it's essentially competitive. I'm above you, I'm better than you, and I'm gonna let you know it. And the trouble with pride ultimately is a great big lie. Also, pride always involves vaunting yourself over God. God gives a commandment, I don't care, I'm gonna do what I want. I I could give a whole hour lecture on pride, but that's what pride is. Please don't misunderstand it. It's actually the worst of all sins. Basically, every sin reduces to pride because every sin reduces to saying, I know better than God. And you don't. Okay, Avarice, greed. It could be theft, it could be fraud, it could be stinginess, it could be cheating on your taxes, it could be injustice. Um, it could be um, counting your change after going through the checkout line and realizing that you were given too much change and saying, huh, it's not my problem. Okay? Avarice, Okay, greed. Lust did I tell you I, I could go on and on about lust too. you know what you know what? I, could t- I can't tell you about lust without telling you about the proper nature of human sexuality. Lust is a misuse of it. I can give you the briefest of all definitions, the briefest of all definitions. It's when you misuse human sexuality, and ultimately that is the using of another person for your own gratification. Ultimately, all sexual sin reduces to that. Um... A person becomes an object. I'm like, if you don't mind that I kind of foray into R-rated here, I had a woman once. She was telling me all about the the, um, the uh, crimes that are the grievances with her husband, and she says, "I can summarize it all. This he uses me to masturbate. That's lust. Okay. Um, it's a misuse of what God intended sexuality to be. Anger. I can give you a simple summary definition of anger. It's when something gets in the way of a good you're trying to, uh, to achieve. That's anger, and it can be justified. If the good you're trying to achieve is a very, very great thing, like defending or protecting somebody, even Jesus got angry. Anger isn't always a sin, but most of the time it is. I saw somebody yell at a woman in the Wendy's, the cashier at the Wendy's, because he didn't want ketchup on his burger. Okay, there's a good there. He wanted a, a tasty burger. Something got in the way of the good. Ketchup was put on a burger. What he did in a consequence was far, far, far disproportionate. That's anger. Okay. Quarreling. Ever thought of gossip or slander? First cousin of anger. Okay. Gluttony. Very, very briefly, it's a misuse of food. Can can food be misused? Yes. Okay. Uh, our society is full of people that misuse food. That's why. Um, some airlines charge people for two seats because they don't fit in one seat, okay uh, but what I want to say is God never intended that sloth, neglect of duty, all right It could be neglect of your duty towards God. He never thought of skipping mass as sloth, but it is failing to pray is sloth, but it is all right um, envy my favorite sin you know what envy really is sadness at the good fortune of somebody else that's what envy is. Let me give you a little fun definition. There's a difference between envy and jealousy. The reason why I said envy, not jealousy. They're not the same thing. Jealousy is thing-centered. Envy is person-centered. Here's jealousy. Fred went a trip to Hawaii. Damn, I wish I could go to Hawaii. That's jealousy. What's it about? Going to Hawaii. Hawaii. Fred went a trip to Hawaii. Jeez, why does that have to be Fred? I hate that guy. (laughs) <laughs> that's envy. Who's it about? A person. Envy is always about a person. I hate that guy who got the promotion and I didn't. It's really not about the promotion. It's about the guy. Sadness at the good fortune of another person. That's the root of all sins, or all one of those seven, okay? So that's a very brief overview of sin. Poor grace It got shafted once again, another year of teaching, another year grace got the sh- stored under the stick. Very, very briefly, here's a definition I want you to remember. Grace is the life of God in your soul. That's what grace is. To know what that means, we have to understand what a soul is, right? And I think I mentioned this before. Here's the simplest way to understand what your soul is. Go to a funeral, look in the casket, what do you see? You see a dead body. Ask yourself one question, what's missing? What's missing? You could say, well, their life is missing. What I want to tell you is everything that's about that person that's not lying in the casket is the soul, so is your soul your sense of humor? Yes. Is your soul your memory? Yes. Is your soul your, your faults? Yes. Is your soul your, your virtues? Yes. Your soul is everything about you that isn't merely physical. It doesn't weigh in a scale. It's not measurable. You can't look at it under a microscope. Um, you can't break out a yardstick and ask you know, how long is your arm, whatever it might be. Um, um, that's, your soul is everything else. Now, grace is the life of God in your soul, okay. A couple of words here for for grace. Charis is the Greek word for grace, and Gratia is the Latin word for grace. Gratia is the reason why we call grace grace, because Gratia means free. God is given away the greatest thing in the whole world, His life, given it away. That's why we call it grace. It's free. All you have to do is ask for it. I rather like the Greek word for grace better, Charis, which means beauty. You know what the we we say that you get grace from celebrating a sacrament, you get grace from saying a, a sincere prayer. We say you get free. That's the Latin word, grace, gratia. You get free. The Greeks, they would say you get beauty. And I think that's a far deeper understanding of what you're actually getting. Because here's what grace is. It's everything that makes a soul beautiful. It's the stuff that you'd award a hero for. It's the stuff you'd honor about somebody. You know, I was in the checkout line of the 7 the other day, and there was a guy in front of me in line, and he's talking to the checkout clerk. And every time he spoke to that that woman, he called her ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Have a good evening, ma'am. I thought, man, this world needs more of that. It's good. It's beautiful. There's something of grace in that. What I want to say is something of the life of God was alive in the fact that that man had that interaction with that woman in treating her in that way. That's grace. If you want to know what grace is, we go back to my examples of the saints. That's what it means when it's really alive. But every time... You say yes to God's life in you. Every time you say yes to grace, grace grows a little bit more. We'll talk about this more when we get into sacraments, okay? Um, Which is why it's very, very important that you go to the sacraments classes. We'll talk about what grace does. But let's just say this. Grace is the undoing of sin. That disease that makes you a liar, that makes you a thief, that makes you an adulterer, whatever it might be, you know it can be reversed. The curse can be turned inside out. People can change. People say, well, once a thief, always a thief. No. Once a liar, always a liar. No. A liar can be made into an honest man, the most honest man in the whole world. You can change. 180 degrees completely. I mean, right up to the last moment of his life. You take a Hitler, you take a any you know, a Stalin, whoever it was. God's grace, plus time, plus their free will, could have turned that soul around. Okay? It's all We always believe that about people. Um, So we say, sin weakens your intellect and your will, grace strengthens it. Sin weakens those relationships, grace builds them back up again. It's part of the reason why I'm a priest. I came to realize this truth about grace and wanted to spend the rest of my life trying to help people know what it was, giving it away, because that's how the world gets fixed. That's what fixes, repairs what's false. Let me tell you just very, very briefly. Um... An unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy uh, response to a relationship is to amputate. If I don't like a person... No. I mean, I'm not saying that this is always bad, because there's sometimes when it has to come to this, don't get me wrong, but um, you have heard somebody get in an argument or dispute and they say, I'm never talking to that person again. That's unhealthy. That's amputation. It doesn't have to come to that. Grace can turn it around. It can be rebuilt. You can help at least be the, v- the vehicle of it. It rebuilds relationships. First thing with God... Second thing with yourself, and if people will cooperate, it'll rebuild with others too. Not always, because they don't always cooperate. You know as well as I do, you can offer somebody good after good after good, and they're hard as diamonds, they won't take it. Well, there's nothing you can do about that, but boy do they have an opportunity. That's what grace does, right? So there's two kinds of grace, just like there's two kinds of sin. All right. Two kinds of grace. There's sanctifying grace and actual grace. Sanctifying grace is the simplest to understand. Sanctifying grace is the status of your relationship with God. I could ask you right now this evening, are you friend with Jesus Christ? And I hope the, you would say yes. I hope you'd say yes. But now let me give you a different question. What if I said that I could go to Jesus Christ and I could ask Jesus, is Ethan your friend, right? Is Russell your friend? What would Jesus say, right? What would Jesus say? That, his answer would be the state of your sanctifying grace. You sanctifying you grace is the depth of your relationship with God. Got it? You can build it. You can grow it. But like you could say, how strong is our friendship? How strong is our friendship? How, how tight is our bond? You ever heard these relationship conversations, the boy and the girl, the man and the woman, they um, have a, relationship, a conversation where they define the relationship? Right? We're going to, where are we? How, 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 how strong? That's, you can say, between you and God, that's sanctifying grace. How strong is your bond? All right? You can strengthen it, you can build it with every prayer, with every sacrament. Actual grace. Now, this is kind of fun and interesting. You've had in your mind the, the, the temptation to do good, haven't you? The idea to say the kind thing, the idea to restrain the unkind word, the idea to do the right, not the wrong. I want to ask you to think of it in a whole new way. Maybe you've never thought of it before. I want you to think of that as grace. It's a little offering from God. That's what it is. That's what we call actual grace. That is to say, an offering for an act, an action. That's, what we call it. That's why we call it actual. It's not like actual as opposed to theoretical, but actual like in an action. So um, there's a middle schooler, because I was reading about middle schoolers, who's being beaten up. And you know what people were doing? We're putting it on Facebook Live. That's what they were doing. Do you think anybody in that crowd had the idea, maybe I should go stop this fight? I'm sure they did. What I want to tell you is that inspiration was actual grace. It's an offer. You don't have to take it. You don't have to take it. But I want to tell you, you you've heard of Fulton Sheen? Archbishop Fulton? It's one of my favorites. Anyway, he said, think about this and you'll come to discover that it's true. You have more temptations to be good than you have to be bad. That is to say, throughout the course of the day, you have more ideas in your head to do the right thing than you have to do the wrong thing. I want to call those not temptations. I want to call those actual graces. And here's what the point that I ask you to think about. When you act on them, they get stronger. When you act on them, you get more of them. And I've used this image before, like the 7th grader, the 8th grader, who's got a crush on the girl across the classroom, and he tries to get her attention. Maybe he tries to tell a joke. Maybe something like that tries to get her attention. And if, he, if she gives him her attention, he does even more to get even more attention, right? I would say, don't listen to me, look how I turned out. Um, but, you know, that's what 8th grade boys do. Or you know, in high school, whatever it might be. God's kind of like that with you. He's dying to get your attention. He wants wants this love relationship with you. The more you give him, the more he'll take. The more he'll take, the more he'll give you. It's a really great thing to get started. But this is what actual grace is. But unfortunately, it works in reverse. If you don't take it, it gets weaker. So no relationship in your life is ever stagnant, ever. I think we've all lived long enough to realize this. All relationships at all times are either getting stronger or they're getting weaker. All times. Every relationship you have. And I want to tell you, it's the same with God. It's either getting stronger or it's getting weaker. But if you think of those temptations to do good as as graces, opportunities, that can make that relationship stronger, you'll see them for what they are. Okay? They're graces. Um, If you say yes to them, you get more. If you say no to them, you get fewer. This is how some people grow stronger and other people grow weaker. How do saints become saints? They said yes to actual graces. That's what they did. How do people become greatly good? They said yes to actual graces. I, you know, I've met a couple people in my life. I swear they're saints. I really do. And the reason why is because after a very short time talking to them, and I mean like ten minutes, I walk away aglow. I'm, it's like I feel like I'm a better person for just having been around them. These are people who said yes to lots of actual graces. God wants to make you like that. You're a screw up. I'm a screw up. But let's get started, right? Let's start going in the right direction. That's what actual graces are. Okay? Um, they 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 help you get more sanctifying grace. They restore it. They increase it. They strengthen the sanctifying grace. Okay? Um, um, but the whole of Christian life is a response to God's grace. Whole of Christian life is a response. Every good we do, even the thought to do it, it's always God's offer. And all we do is respond. We actually don't initiate. If you have the idea to do something good, the idea came from God. God always initiates. Okay, Always, always, always. A little meditation for you here at the end. Signs that you're lacking in grace. Signs that you're filled with grace. And by the way, these always go together. Um, they, they, they come in groups. They come in bands. Selfishness, fury... Factions, envy, uh, rivalry, hatred, uh, licentiousness, impurity. They tend to travel in groups. Those signs that you're lacking in grace. Or patience, kindness, generosity, control over yourself, joyfulness. Signs that God's grace are present. Just little things to think about, Okay.